All right, please grab your Bibles and turn with me to Genesis 3. Genesis chapter 3. We'll be uh, talking about Christmas things today. The birth of Christ. You say, Genesis 3, boy, that's a long way to go to get to the birth of Christ. The, the sermon won't be that long, uh, so don't get scared. We're not going verse or chapter by chapter all the way to the birth of Christ from Genesis 3, but there's some important stuff we need to see there before we get to the New Testament. <clears throat> the uh, Christmas season itself is a blessing, and it's important, as always, that we focus on who makes blessings blessings, not what makes blessings, blessings, but who makes blessings, blessings. And today I want us to see that starting in the first book of the Bible and then transitioning to the first book of the New Testament. Well, you know the first couple of chapters in Genesis, I'm sure. Perhaps the first verse you ever knew of the Bible, if it wasn't John 3.16, maybe it was Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And hopefully at this point in your life, you've learned more and more about what that means. Hopefully you've studied those passages, you've heard from God in those passages as you've matured not only as a human being and gaining age, but hopefully spiritually and gaining wisdom. And we see in the first couple of chapters of Genesis, of course, creation. And we see that the pinnacle of creation is the creation of human beings. The greatest creatures that God made were the creatures who were His image bearers. There was no greater creature than man and woman bearing the image of God. Male and female, He created them, Genesis 1 says. And He gave them dominion, dominion to rule over the earth, to be stewards of the earth, to reflect God's rulership in the way that they stewarded their environment the animals, and the land. As image bearers of God, human beings, and these first two human beings specifically, were given intellect, emotion, and a will. They were distinct from the animals, distinct from all other creatures in these ways. And these were extremely simple days for humanity. They had a doctrinal statement that had two commands on it. Multiply and don't eat the fruit of that tree over there. Can you imagine simpler days than that? <laughs> no sin in the world and just two commands. Wow. Some of you think back to maybe when you were a kid and you think those were simpler days. Well, go all the way back to the garden. Those were the real simple days. Really, really simple. And yet, we know how it went, right? We know what happened. We know what we're dealing with now because of what they did then. We are living in a fallen and cursed environment because they disobeyed. They disobeyed. They took of the fruit. They broke half of all the commands they were given, <laughs> and they took of the fruit. And then the Lord confronted them, and that's where we'll pick up in Genesis 3, verse 8, the Lord God confronting first the man and then the woman. Genesis 3, 8, it says, they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. 
And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, "Uh, Yes, I did. Please forgive me, Lord. (laughs) The man said, verse 12, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And she said, I'm a sinner. Please forgive me. No, no, no. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. The crafty serpent was able and willing to deceive Eve. And so he did. Adam, of course, joined her. I always find it interesting when I read through Genesis 3 and just am struck again each time. It says that, she gave some to her husband who was with her. It's not that he was far off and she you know, wasn't able to consult with him about what was happening. He was right there. He was with her and she gave to him. And they were definitely in this together as a joint endeavor. Well, God comes along afterwards and he curses the serpent. Verses 14 and 15 I just read. The cursing of the serpent. All humanity was now set to live in a fallen world. God curses the serpent. He ends up cursing the ground, too, for man's sake. And, of course, humanity is now disciplined, living in a fallen world. Humanity receives strict discipline from God. For the woman, there's pain and childbearing. For the man, there's sweat and toil and difficulty in his labor. We live in a fallen environment. But... In all of this, let's look at verse 15. In this address to the serpent, we have an amazing promise of God. We have a promise that's found within the curse. Hostility is placed between the serpent and the woman. That's the first part of the verse. It says, God speaking, I will put enmity between you and the woman. That's a hard word to pronounce. It's a word we don't use very often. You could put the word hostility in there. They're synonyms. I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your seed, the serpent's offspring, and her seed. It's an interesting, interesting way that that's phrased, isn't it? And then it says, here's the promise. He, now we're talking about a singular seed of the woman, shall bruise you, the serpent, on the head, And you, the serpent, shall bruise him, that singular seed again, on the heel. So the promise is that through the woman entered sin, but through another woman, the serpent will be crushed. Through a woman, sin enters the world, yet it's going to be through a woman that the deceiver will deceive no more. This is an amazing promise. The woman's seed, a male, a son, he's going to crush the serpent's head. In the battle between mankind and the serpent, the enmity that's there, the hostility that's there, 
there's a victor pronounced in the battle before he's ever born. Before he is born into the world, there's a victor pronounced. This one who's coming from the woman who will crush the serpent. He'll destroy the serpent. And this we know, I hope we know, this is speaking of Jesus. This is the first promise we have of the coming one. This is the first promise of Christmas. When you think of Christmas, there are all kinds of things that you think about. When you think of Christmas in a religious sense, there are perhaps certain verses you think of. But what's the first verse about Christmas? Genesis 3.15, right here. Her seed is going to crush the head of the serpent. And this is just an amazing irony that's going to play out over millennia. It's an irony that's presented to us here, and I found some just amazing quotes I want to share with you from church history about this verse, starting with Irenaeus. We're going way back. We're going back over 1,500 years. Irenaeus says, "...the enemy would not have been justly conquered unless it had been a man made of woman who conquered him," speaking of Jesus. "...for it was by a woman that he had power over man from the beginning." Because of this, the Lord also declares Himself to be the Son of Man. And listen to this amazing phrase. So that as our race went down to death by a man, and as death won the palm of victory over us by a man, Adam, so we might by a man receive the palm of victory over death. We just don't phrase things like, like that, do we? That's just cool. That's just, that's just great. Look at that last part again. As our race went down to death by a man, and as death won the palm of victory over us by a man, so we might by a man receive the palm of victory over death. This is just beautiful drama that God has woven together in history. Fast, fast forward to about the 1500s, I suppose. This is from Zwingli. He wrote, The serpent's head was not crushed by the woman, but rather by her seed, namely Christ. The sense of God's word is, is this, through a woman you seduced, through a woman you will succumb. And he continues, talking from God's perspective to the serpent, indeed, since you saw a woman as a suitable means for carrying out your tricks and plotting, however weak she may be, however foolish and susceptible to your tricks, she will nonetheless bring forth the seed that will crush your head. God speaking to the serpent, this great irony. Yes, you brought death into the world through her, but her seed is going to bring you to death. Similar to, this is one of the first verses in the Bible that I thought was really cool, which again, it's one of those things that exposes my personality, I guess. But when Samuel was dealing with King Agag, King Agag who had killed people unrighteously, and he says, just as your sword has made many women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag into pieces. Kids, the Bible's cool, huh? <laughs> no, the, no, the Bible's real, just has real stuff in there for us. But that irony, it's God saying to the serpent, just as you have brought death, so you're going to be destroyed. You will die. You will be crushed. One more quote. This is from Alexander McLaren. I love reading Alexander McLaren. I don't agree with him on some things, but he, hardly anyone writes better than McLaren. So we're fast-forwarding this is closer to our present day. He wrote this, At that first hour of sin, Genesis 3, at that first hour of sin and retribution, 
a gleam of hope like the stray beam that steals through a gap in a thundercloud promises that the conquered shall one day be the conqueror and that the woman's seed, though wounded in the struggle, shall one day crush the poison-bearing flat head in the dust and end forever his power to harm. Oh, that's a good, that's a good sentence. That's one sentence. <laughs> that's, that's a great sentence. God is going to crush Satan, the serpent, through the seed of the woman. And all of history from this point forward, look back at Genesis 3, all of history from this point forward is now based on this reality. Hostility exists, and there's a promise to end hostility. All of history is just in light of this now, from this moment forward. The sun will crush the serpent, but in the meantime, sin has made the world hostile, yet God has promised to fix it. And we live in this tension, don't we? All of history has lived in this tension. It's a hostile world out there because of sin. But her seed is going to make an end to that hostility. From this point forward, so, man began looking forward to this coming one. Turn with me to Genesis 5, just a page or two over. Genesis chapter 5. Mankind is looking toward the one who is going to free them from the penalty of sin. Who's going to free them from the cursed environment. And we see this, I think that there's an argument to be made that this isn't what's going on, but I think this is very interesting. At the end of Genesis 5, look at verse 28 with me. Speaking of Lamech, this is about 10 generations after Adam. It says, Lamech lived 182 years and became the father to a son. He's the father of Noah. And look at why he called him Noah. He said, this one will give us rest from our work and from the toil of our hands arising from the ground which the Lord had cursed. So it's the reality that, yes, we live in a cursed world, but there's one coming. There's one coming who's going to reverse this curse. And I think that Lamech had in mind, this son is going to be the one. And with each generation, they're looking for the one. They're looking for the one who's going to crush the serpent's head. And we talked Wednesday night in our gathering here Wednesday night about how God's timing to us can be so bizarre, but obviously His timing's perfect. Because God could have sent His Son back there in Genesis 3. Genesis 3 could have ended with, and then Jesus came and He died on the cross for their sins and rose again. That could have happened. God could have done that. But what's God doing? He's weaving together a story over thousands of years with all kinds of beautiful prophecy, themes of redemption that play out over time. And with each generation, they're wondering, is Messiah coming? We're finding out more and more about who He's going to be and what He's going to do. Is, is now the time? And they were still thousands of years off at this point. As time went on, we find out more detail. Deuteronomy 18, for instance, Moses speaking to Israel. And he's telling this nation now that God has formed. He could have jumped right to the Messiah coming, but instead he forms a nation and builds them up, and then they fall, and then 400 years of silence, and then he sends his Messiah. Amazing. But he tells this nation that God had recently formed, there's coming a one from among your own people 
who's a prophet that's going to replace me. Deuteronomy 18, Moses. And he says, and you shall listen to him. And so they're looking forward to this capital P prophet. He's going to be a prophet like Moses, and we have to listen to him. Isaiah. Christmas is a great time to remember the prophecies of Isaiah. For unto us a child is born, a son is given. He will be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace. Jesus. We will know Him as Jesus. Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call His name Emmanuel. Finding out more and more information. This was still hundreds of years before Jesus was born. But they're finding out more and more information about this coming one promised all the way back in Genesis 3. You get into the other prophets and you find out so many more things. We're going to look at Micah saying he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Zechariah had all kinds of visions of this Messiah and talked about how the Messiah is going to come and plant his feet on the Mount of Olives and split the Mount of Olives. And he's going to deliver his people Israel. So many amazing prophecies about this coming one. And yet with every generation is now the time is now the time. Well, let's go to that first book of the New Testament, the book of Matthew, because we know, of course, this is the time. Notice that the page to the, to the left and maybe even the pages before, those are blank pages. 400 years of silence, Israel was sitting and waiting. Perhaps fewer people than ever before were wondering, is now when He's coming, the seed of the woman? Maybe many had lost hope at this point, many who didn't have faith. And yet the New Testament that's preserved for us starts off with this verse, Matthew 1.1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Here he comes. The coming one has arrived. The promise of Genesis 3.15, her seed crushing the head of the, of the serpent. Here he is, the record of of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, son of David, son of Abraham. Let's pick up in verse 18 and read through his birth. It says in Matthew 1.18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when she had considered this, or when he had considered this rather, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." Now all this took place to fulfill what, is, what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Wow. An amazing story, a story that hopefully for you never gets old. If you know Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior, this is an amazing thing. That the coming one of Genesis 3, the seed of the woman, was born into this world like every other human being before him, except for Adam and Eve, of course. 
He was born into the world just like everyone else. His conception was miraculous, but he was born naturally in accordance with prophecies. Yet unlike other babies, there were men seeking him to call him king and even to worship him in that infant state, seeking to worship a baby. Let's pick up in chapter 2. This is what Logan read for us earlier. Verse 1, it says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the last days, or in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. Well, let's consider these certain wise men who were looking for the coming one of Genesis 3, who were told he would be king of the Jews. Let's consider them for a bit. Who were they? Well, if you've heard enough Christmas messages in your life, you know that we don't have a very satisfying answer to who these men were. (laughs) We just don't. In fact, we don't even know how many there were. We know they brought three types of gifts, but we don't know if that was two people carrying three gifts or ten people keeping track of three gifts. We don't know. There are no real satisfying answers to where they came from and who, who they were biographically. They're kind of like Melchizedek in that sense. They get brought up and off they go. They played a certain role. But we do know they were called magi. You see that in your text. And what does that word magi look like in English? Well, it's Kind of looks like the word magic, right? Just missing a letter. It's where we get our word for magic or for magician. But don't think of that. Don't think of some socially awkward middle-aged man with a top hat or anything like that. These weren't magicians, street performers, or anything like that. But they were men devoted to astronomy, men devoted to studying religion, men even devoted to studying medicine. It seems as though that was what they were about. And God used their areas of expertise to bring them to this place on this day, to bring them first to Jerusalem and then to Bethlehem. That's about all we know as to who they were. What were they told, though? What were they told? Well, they were told at least this, you see in verse 2 again, that the king of the Jews was born. They were told that much. They were specifically looking for the king of the Jews. They had some sort of connection in their mind with this newborn child being a king, and a king of, specifically, the Jewish people, the coming one of Genesis 3.15, the seed of the woman. Now, how were they told? Well, we don't really have that information either. We don't particularly know how they came to this very certain conclusion that the king of the Jews had been born. We don't know. But we know how they found him, and that was by his star. Again, in verse 2, they refer to the star as his star. Not just a star, but his star. And this is a possible reference all the way back to the book of Numbers. You don't have to turn there, but I want to read to you from Numbers 24, starting at verse 15. 24, 15 to 19. This is Balaam speaking. The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor. And, And the scripture says before this section that the Spirit of God was coming upon Balaam. And so as he's speaking this oracle, this is something that is coming from God. 
It says, the oracle of the man whose eye is open. Verse 16 says something. (laughs) There it is. Uh, The oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down, yet having his eyes uncovered. Pay attention to this. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel and shall, cru- or sh- yeah, and shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down the sons of Sheth. Verse 18. Edom ha- shall be a possession. Seir, its enemies, also will be a possession. While Israel performs valiantly, one from Jacob shall have dominion and will destroy the remnant from the city. That's an interesting prophecy, isn't it? There's one from Jacob who will have dominion, and there's a star from Israel, a star. So, is that the connection the Magi were making? We have no idea. I'm sharing that with you just as a possible connection that they made when you consider how they found out this information and how they found him. It seems, though, quite likely that God was using astronomy in conjunction with the well-known prophecies of the Old Testament. Not just the prophecy I just read to you from the book of Numbers, but the prophecy from Micah. It says that they came to Jerusalem. Uh, Notice it says in uh, verse 1 that Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem. It doesn't say that the star led them to Jerusalem. It says they saw the star, they beheld the star, and I think probably most naturally they went to Jerusalem. If they didn't know Micah's prophecy about the king of the Jews being born in Bethlehem, well, where, where would you go to find out about the Jews? Where would you go to find out from someone who knows? You would go to Jerusalem, and so that's where they went. But let's look again at verse 3. When they went to Jerusalem and Herod heard of this, he was troubled, it says, and all Jerusalem with him. Verse 4, gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people. So he's getting these men learned in the Scriptures together. It says, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. And being good students of the Old Testament, they said, oh yeah, there's a verse for that. (laughs) They said, in Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So, They are in Jerusalem, hearing from these men learned in the Hebrew Scriptures that Bethlehem is where they ought to be. They ought to go to that small town and see the King of the Jews. Now, God certainly used many elements in bringing them to the King of the Jews, and we see that one of those elements is the hostility and the hypocrisy of Herod himself. Look at verse 7 with me. Herod secretly called the Magi and determined from them the exact time the star appeared. So Herod's nervous. If you don't know much about Herod, you should know this. He's a bad guy. He didn't exactly come to rulership through noble means. He was a wicked man. He shed much blood. And when you, through hostility, through trickery, through manipulation, you get something... In this case, a position of privilege, 
You get really nervous when anything threatens that position. It's not like God has given it to him with a promise saying, you are king and you shall be king. That's not what happened. Herod used his own cunning like the serpent himself to trick his way, to kill his way to power. And so he's very threatened by this talk of a new king, even if he's just a baby. Verse 8, he sent them, the Magi, to Bethlehem, and he said, listen to this slime ball, go and search carefully for the child, and when you have found him, report to me so that I too may come and worship him. Not a chance. Herod wasn't looking to bow the knee to a newborn child. But God used Herod's hypocrisy to send those men to Bethlehem, that they would be on this mission to find him. And as long as they followed the star, they were on the path to him. Verse 9, after hearing the king, they went their way, and the star, which they had seen in the east, that's the same star, but now it's going on before them. Isn't this interesting? Until it came and stood over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They came to the child by way of this star, God using the celestial bodies to lead them. So that's how they found him. That's how they found the child. And then we should answer, how did they regard the child? Well, the other questions we have vague answers to, we can't really give a full, thorough answer to them, but this we can give a full answer to. How did these magi regard the child? Well, look again at verse 2 with me. What was their intention the whole time? Matthew 2, 2. We saw his star in the east, and we have come to worship him. We've come to worship him. And then again in verse 11, same chapter, verse 11, after coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and what did they do? They fell to the ground and worshiped him. That was their intention, was to bow before the king. Even though he was just there in swaddling cloths in a manger, they were there to bow the knee. They were there to pay homage. They were there to give what is due a king. They were there to prostrate themselves before royalty. That was their intention, and that's what they did. This was Herod's fear all along, of course, that there's another king that someone would bow the knee to. We still have Herods and Caesars in our lives today, don't we? Those who don't want you to bow the knee to another king. And here, the wise men are bowing the knee to King Jesus. They did something here for a baby that we sometimes don't do for the highest-ranking adults in our society. When's the last time you fell before another human being? Well, they did it before this newborn child. There's a clear recognition that this is the king. There was no doubt in their minds. It's unclear if they knew about the hypostatic union, that this child is truly God and truly man. It's unclear if they understood that this child is 100% God and 100% man but they knew he was the king. That's what they knew. And they gave the king the honor he was due. Imagine traveling to go meet the president of the United States. And since I know you well, I should say maybe a president, not 
this particular one, but a president of the United States, or the governor, some high-ranking official in your life, and you're traveling a distance to go and to see him or to see her. How are you going to behave in the presence of royalty? When English people meet the queen, they don't say, what's up? (laughs) They treat her like royalty because she's royalty. And these wise men had a clear recognition, though this is a baby, that they were to treat that baby as royalty the king of the Jews. The 39 Old Testament books and thousands of years of history led up to this moment, the coming one of Genesis 3, the seed of the woman, the coming one. And from that day forth, the child's status as the Son of God was set on full display for the world. The life he was then to live from that day forward was to demonstrate that not only is he king, as many men before him were regarded as king, But he is the one true God. His deity and his grace would become fully manifested to all people. He was the perfectly behaved son for his earthly parents. Unthinkable. Unimaginable. No, it's believable. Because we have a record of this, don't we? We can believe it. In our flesh, it's unbelievable. The perfectly behaved son for his earthly parents. The only sinless human. Never once did he sin. He was the miracle-working man for the outcasts of society. From his first miracle where he turned water into wine for those who were at this wedding. And did they need wine? Well, no, but there he was and he put his deity on display even in that moment. When he called his disciples and he had them gather the fish into the boats and their nets were breaking and their boats were sinking, putting his deity on display. When people would come to him with all kinds of infirmities, you can think of uh, Bartimaeus, the blind man. Son of David, have mercy on me. And not just because he had mercy, but because he had mercy coupled with power, he could see again. He healed the blind. He even raised people from the dead. Those, Those who had fallen asleep, the text says, he gave them life that they would rise again. The miracle-working man and the truth-speaking teacher. He would open the Old Testament Scriptures and he would give the people truth. They said when when they heard Jesus teaching, they said, he's like no other teacher we've ever heard. He speaks with authority, with certainty, with power, with effectiveness. He wasn't just a miracle worker, he was a truth speaker. And he could explain to them the Hebrew Scriptures. You think of when he saw the, the two men on the road to Emmaus after his resurrection. He opened up the Old Testament and he showed them the texts that had to do with him and explained them to them. He also taught about the future. He predicted that he would die and rise again multiple times. We have lots of texts about the end times, the second coming of the Son of Man. Mark 13, Matthew 24, Jesus is talking about his return and what's going to happen in the world. And Jesus spoke truth about his identity, constantly identifying himself as the one true God, the great I Am, Yahweh of the Old Testament, now made flesh, the one who created all things, who holds all things together, the Savior of the world, 
He was a miracle worker. He was a truth speaker. And maybe more astonishing than all of those things, he was a grantor of forgiveness. With the power, the status he has as the one true God, he offers forgiveness to all people who believe in his name. He could have come as a man instead of as a baby. And when he came as a man, he could have come and he could have put everyone to death justly. This is what our sin deserves. He's holy. He's eternal. And in his presence, there cannot be any hint of impurity. And we have a long list of impurities. We have a long list of rebellion. And he could have come and he could have ended it for you. He could have ended it for the Romans who were in charge of the government. He could have overthrown them. Is that anything for God? He could have have given everyone the death they deserved. But instead, he came as a baby. And he grew up under man's rule in that Roman government with the scorn and the shame that came from rebellious people like me and you who said things like, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Oh, what blasphemy. Speaking of Jesus Christ, the only good. He came and He offered people forgiveness if they would believe in Him. If you're still in Matthew, turn over to chapter 4, just one verse. Matthew 4, 17. This is after His baptism in chapter 3. This is after 40 days in the wilderness. Jesus certainly, even at this point, proven to be the Son of God, but He's just getting started. Matthew 4, 17, from that time, Jesus began. This is the start of His ministry. And He began to preach. What was He saying? Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus' ministry was needed because man needed to be saved. Man needs to be saved. And He came to have this ministry, to live the life that we couldn't live, under the law. He was born under the law, Galatians 4 says. He lived a perfect life under the law, which no one could ever do. And He died the death that we deserve. He took His perfect obedience to the cross, the cross He was destined for, the cross that He willingly chose. In perfect obedience, He went to the cross trading His privileged position for our condemnation, trading the status He deserved as the Son of God for the status we had as cursed sinners, that we might become sons of God, children of the Most High, through the adoption that He offers. And He rose again proving that He is who He said He was. And in all of this, the New Testament tells us that He was disarming the rulers and authorities that exist in the world. Through His death on the cross, He was having great victory over the invisible world. Through His death on the cross, He was beginning to crush the serpent's head. This is the start of that. He's crushing Satan's head by offering forgiveness and life by offering the only satisfactory payment there could ever be. Satan is losing. Though it looks like in all of our eyes, in a worldly perspective, a man 
with nails driven through his hands and through his feet, put on public display to be mocked as he died the most painful death we could ever imagine. It looks like Satan's winning, doesn't it? But Satan's being disarmed. Satan is being disarmed. And all of his minions, all of his soldiers, they're losing because Jesus took the cross willingly and took up his life again. They destroyed the cross and in three days, or they destroyed the temple and in three days he rebuilt it, right? This is what he promised. There's coming a day of total defeat for the serpent. All people will see and behold the total crushing of Satan, the destruction of evil. And in the here and now, we get a foretaste of that victory, don't we, as Christians? We get the beginning of that victory in the here and now. Because when you trust in the one who has come, the seed of the woman, when you trust in his finished work, dying in our place for our sins, rising again, you get him. You get the gift of him. Praise be to God for his indescribable gift, Scripture says, the gift of Jesus. There is no gift you could get this Christmas that's any better than the gift of Jesus. And some of you have had him for decades. And praise God, don't let that gift get old. You have this precious gift, Christ. You have the Spirit of the living God within you. And yes, Satan is prowling around. He's seeking someone to devour. But he cannot bind the strong man who lives in your heart, can he? He can't overtake you. You are untouchable because you have the coming one, King Jesus. And in your life, He's starting to crush the serpent's head. And until that day when we're glorified, we're just with Him in this battle. And when we rise again and we're with Him in glory, we'll stand with Him as champions, as victors. Capital V, Victor Jesus, with us, utterly destroying that hostility that entered in in Genesis 3. An amazing story that God's putting together. So don't lose sight of that this Christmas and make it about fudge. Fudge is great, but it doesn't beat this amazing, amazing story that God's putting together, crushing the serpent through the seed of the woman. Let's pray. God, again, we thank you for what you've done in our lives and what you continue to do. Prepare us for the days ahead that we would stand for you, that we would count all things as rubbish compared to knowing you, that there's nothing that we could have in our lives materially, relationally. There's nothing we could have that compares to you. Give us, give us that type of vision. And give, her, give us a, a deeper sense of appreciation for our Lord and Savior who has come, who has disarmed the rulers and authorities, who has made his abode in our hearts. Give us just a deeper awareness for this, that we might honor you all of our days. And give us great joy this season, though we're all going through difficult things and at varying degrees. Nothing compares to knowing you. And you've told us, that the difficulties we go through in this life aren't even worth being compared to the glories that are ahead. 
Give us that kind of joy, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.